from uh, about 50 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hey, murder fam, and welcome back to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and this is Serial Saturday where every Saturday we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Patrick Kearney. Patrick Wayne Kearney was born on September 24, 1939 in East Los Angeles, California. So let's get into some history for that time. We already know this was the beginning of World War II. MLB baseball player Lou Gehrig retired from baseball after being diagnosed with ALS, which after was then known as Lou Gehrig's disease. In Spain, dictator Francisco Franco conquered Madrid, which finally ended the Spanish Civil War. In south-central Chile, an 8.3 magnitude earthquake hit, and somewhere between 30,000 to 50,000 people died as a result. In Australia, 71 people died across Victoria in one of the worst-ever bushfires. The very last public execution, decapitation by guillotine, occurred in France. The Independent Republic of Czechoslovakia was dissolved. Amelia Earhart was officially declared dead 18 months after her disappearance. In Bombay, Mahatma Gandhi began to fast, protesting against British rule in India. All of this, along with the beginnings of World War II, this was the environment that Patrick was born into. His parents were George and Eunice Kearney. Now, I couldn't find much information about his parents, but I could find that George was born in 1915 in Kaufman County, Texas. He had several siblings, and then he went on to work for the Los Angeles Police Department. Eunice was born in 1919 in Arizona, and she was a very happy housewife. At some point, the couple married, moved to Los Angeles, where Patrick was born. When he was four years old, his brother Michael was born. Then the next year, his last sibling and brother Chester was born. By all accounts, his very early life was good. Sources say his parents were loving and stable. They were simple and straightforward. It was said that his father was a fairly strict disciplinarian, but nothing out of the ordinary for the times whatsoever. There was no abuse or neglect reported at all. As his brothers came into the picture, again, there is nothing that I found that would indicate he didn't get along with his siblings. 
outside of completely normal sibling rivalry, he had a good relationship with his brothers. He was a thin and sickly child, though, who was forced to wear heavy prescription glasses and therefore was bullied terribly in school. The kids in elementary school called him girly or a sissy. The older he got, the worse the bullying, and it was apparently so intense that Patrick himself would compare it to how Carrie White was treated from Stephen King's book, Carrie. According to a study at Radford University, Patrick stated that he first began thinking about killing when he was just eight years old. So then the family moved to a different area of Los Angeles, but it did nothing to stop the bullying. As he began nearing puberty, the taunting turned even darker, where they were calling him derogatory names for homosexual men. He didn't really develop any meaningful friendships and was withdrawn from society. It is said that when Patrick was 13 years old, his father taught him how to kill pigs by shooting them behind the left ear. He found that he actually enjoyed this activity and continued doing so without his father knowing. Then he became fascinated with the blood and the entrails and would cover himself with the liquid remains of the pigs. This is when Patrick began to torture and kill animals. He also began fantasizing about killing people and the darker his fantasies, the more he withdrew from his peers and society, getting lost within his own mind. And then he introduced bestiality into his regimen of animal torture namely the family dog. So with his poor performance in school, he was enrolled at a school for children with learning disabilities and still the bullying continued. Finally, his father decided to quit the LAPD and moved the family to Wilcox, Arizona, where he decided to become a salesman. But no sooner had Patrick settled in, his father moved the family back to California to Redondo Beach. But finally, Patrick was able to graduate from high school in 1957. And that was his childhood, so let's dive in. Patrick was described as sickly, having to wear thick glasses and considered feminine. In the late 40s, this would have definitely guaranteed him being bullied. Bullied children, as we have covered many times, are at a much higher risk for future aggressive behaviors. Signs that a child is being bullied are withdrawal, depression, reluctance to go to school, low grades, self-deprecating talk, isolation, perceived illnesses, and it just gets worse from there. As the bullying continues, the victim can lose all self-esteem develop severe depression, can turn to drug and alcohol abuse, some begin to self-harm, and some even commit suicide. And then we have the long-term effects of bullying, which can be spousal or child abuse, antisocial behavior, which I believe counts in this instance, and they have a harder time with education or employment. 
And being a young homosexual male back in those times could have very well been a death sentence, a real death sentence. Though the community was in the beginning stages of coming together, at least in the larger cities. But in 1947, the U.S. Park Police initiated in the city a, quote, sex perversion elimination program, unquote, targeting gay men. It was considered, at least then, a mental illness. I mean, we already know this. So it's understandable that Patrick would not feel safe about who he would eventually realize he was. Then, unfortunately, and I assume innocently, not knowing what he was really doing, his own father gave him an outlet for these frustrations, killing and butchering pigs. That escalated to him doing it unsupervised, and he even covered and bathed himself in the blood and entrails of these pigs. There just really isn't a term that I'm familiar with that would adequately describe how disturbing that is. He continued on to torture and kill other animals, and then that led to bestiality. So here's another very, very hard disclaimer, disclaimer, okay? So, bestiality is also known as zoophilia, which includes intense, recurring sexual fantasies, urges, and activities with non-human animals. And, side note, it's technically not illegal in Brazil, Mexico, Thailand, Finland, Hungary, and Romania. And then locally, at least to me, it's not illegal in Texas, Kentucky, Nevada, New Jersey, New Hampshire, Wyoming, West Virginia, and New Mexico. So, you know, there's that. Now, recent studies have shown that people copulate with animals, not because of a lack of available other humans, but because it is a sexual preference and also because of a desire for affection. It would also seem that a study done by Dr. Hani Maletsky shows that the most preferred animal by males was dogs. So there are also apparently different types of zoophiles that I just really don't want to get into. Suffice it to say that a young teenager sexually abusing an animal is a very, very bad sign. Now, when the family moved away from California to Arizona, Patrick actually took up learning different languages and was actually really successful. But then his father took the family back to California, where his dark and violent fantasies began right where they left off. Now, I don't think it's any secret that Patrick, without any intervention, was going to go down a dark path. But let's get back into it. So, after Patrick graduated, the family moved to Houston, Texas for a short time before going right back to California. Once back, he enrolled in the El Camino Community College in Torrance, California, but that only lasted about a year before he then enlisted in the U.S. Air Force and was then stationed in Texas after his basic training. And this is where Patrick met David Hill. Patrick himself was a bit frustrated because he had thought the Air Force would, you know, 
send him overseas where he could use his talent for picking up other languages. But, you know, that just didn't happen. So when he befriended David, he found someone who was also the polar opposite of himself. David was a larger, he was a tall man standing at six feet or more. He had a very laid back personality. People generally liked him. He made friends easily. Whereas Patrick was described as basically lacking any real personality. He was small, thin, standing at about five foot five inches tall. And for reasons not entirely known, the two became lovers. But since they were both in the military, especially during that time, clearly they couldn't let anyone find out about their relationship. If they had been caught, they would have been dishonorably discharged and arrested and put in prison. But at some point, it was discovered that David at least was gay and he was dishonorably discharged. Tucking tail, embarrassed, David went back to his hometown of Lubbock, Texas, to settle down with a woman he was not in love with. And Patrick was left alone. But David's marriage was obviously not a great one. Then later, Patrick was honorably discharged from the Air Force and, with David, moved to Long Beach, California. Patrick then got a job as an engineer at Hughes Aircraft, and his bosses admired his work ethic, stating he was a diligent worker that could always be counted on. What he didn't know about the job when he walked in as a new hire, he learned extremely quickly. He was very impressive. So for a time, life was pretty good for the couple. Where they lived, they felt safe enough, at least, to live as an openly gay couple, but they kept to themselves, not really making friends in the community. But as time went on, it became clear that David didn't have what it took to find a good job. Sources say he worked in bathhouses and bars part-time and made little money, which put financial strain, of course, on Patrick. The two fought, and in 1962, when David had had enough, he decided to hitchhike across the country, leaving Patrick. He wound up back in Lubbock and tried to get back together with his wife. At 22 years old, Patrick decided to take night classes, and he signed up for a history class at California State University near his home in Long Beach. At first, this was an effective distraction, but it didn't take long for his darker side to come forward. One evening, when he was feeling particularly hurt by David's abandonment, he decided to go for a ride on his motorcycle. While out for his long drive, he came across a 19-year-old young man and his 16-year-old cousin, who said they were originally from somewhere in the Midwest. Patrick offered to take the 19-year-old for a ride on his motorcycle, and the young man excitedly agreed. They went along, then Patrick stopped. He pulled out a gun, and he shot the young man in the head, just behind the left ear as he had been taught, killing the young man instantly. 
He then took the body further away from the road, out into some bushes, and sexually assaulted it. Once his urge was satiated, it dawned on him that the teen's cousin had been a witness to him taking the 19-year-old for a ride, and this was a problem. So he got up, he got back on his motorcycle, and he drove back to where the cousin had been waiting for them to return. He convinced the cousin to get on the bike, and Patrick would take him to the other. Needless to say, he got the same treatment as his own cousin. These first two murders would prove to Patrick that what he ultimately wanted was an unresisting partner whom he could have complete control and possession of, much like Jeffrey Dahmer. And also similar to Dahmer, Patrick mutilated the corpses once he was done with them. It didn't take Patrick long to find another victim, a man named Mike, who was killed in the same fashion as the first two. But then David came back to Patrick, so the murders stopped, at least for a while. David and his wife had finally divorced. In 1966, the now 27-year-old Patrick was again becoming quite frustrated that his lover was still not able to keep a steady job. In less than a year, he would kill again. He and David decided to take a trip to Tijuana, Mexico, which is just over the border, to visit a friend. While there, Patrick met a man named George, and he liked him. So he went into George's home while he was sleeping and shot him in the head. He then drug the body into the bathroom, where he placed it in the bathtub. He sexually assaulted it, then began the task of dismembering it with an X-Acto knife, including skinning the hide. Once he had finished, he retrieved the bullet from inside the head so that it couldn't be connected to his gun and buried the pieces behind George's garage. In December 1969, Patrick bought a house in Redondo Beach and he was proud of his purchase. He and David worked together to make it their home, but while they lived there, their former neighbors commented on how they kept to themselves they weren't particularly friendly. It's not to say they were rude, just very private. But some did know that if David invited people over to the house, Patrick would get very upset. And it was noted that the couple did have some pretty intense fights. And when they would fight, Patrick, who was now driving a VW Bug, would take road trips down to Tijuana. There, he would find another victim, usually men walking along the highway at gay bars or gas stations, take them off to a secluded area or sometimes even while he was still driving, shoot them in the head, rape the corpse, and then dismember them, placing the pieces in black trash bags, which is where he got his moniker, quote, the trash bag killer. Unquote. And this trend did not go unnoticed by the Mexican police. The bags would be found in the desert, but some he left in landfills, canyons, or just dumped alongside the highway. 
it was noted that some of the victims had actually been beaten after they were dead. Like he was taking his frustrations out on the bodies. And if he had time, he would wash the victims in an attempt to remove any evidence. Patrick got off on this so much that he expanded his victim preference to include children and adolescents. In 1974, he killed a five-year-old little boy in Lenox, California. The body wouldn't be found for two months. Another boy who was just eight years old, he murdered him by suffocating him, then taking the body home to enjoy before he disposed of the remains in a national forest near Los Angeles. That victim was also found two months later. In 1976, 37-year-old Patrick Kearney picked up a 13-year-old boy in Redondo Beach. This boy had a reputation, if you will, with the police and he had been hitchhiking. Patrick struck up a friendship and asked the boy to go on a camping trip with him. He then shot him, assaulted the body, and disposed of him in such a way that later, while making his confessions to the police, he stated the remains would never be found. In March of 1977, David met a 17-year-old young man named John at the gym and invited him back to the house. When John arrived, Patrick answered the door, but David wasn't home at that moment, so Patrick invited him inside. He then shot him in the back of the head, sexually assaulted the corpse, and dismembered it, discarding the remains in the desert. Now, the last time John had been seen was in the company of David, and the police came to Patrick's home and questioned him. It was after this questioning that the couple then packed up and fled to El Paso, Texas, but their families begged them to turn themselves in after the remains were discovered. The police searched Patrick and David's home and warrants were issued for their arrest. In July of 1977, the couple turned themselves in. David was questioned, but cleared of any wrongdoing and was released. Patrick fully confessed to his crimes, having killed at least 28 victims over 15 years, though he is suspected of killing nearly 50. At his trial, he pled guilty and was sentenced to life in prison at Mule Creek State Prison in Sacramento, California. And as of this recording, he is still alive today. In my opinion, this case seems to be a mix of nature and nurture. Many people are bullied, sometimes relentlessly, and never go on to harm anyone. Many children are taught how to hunt and kill game for food or sport and don't bathe themselves in the blood and entrails of their kills. I believe the psychopathy was already there, lying beneath the surface before he ever killed, 
but the environment was the catalyst that successfully mixed him into the serial killer he became. But what do you think? Leave me a comment at serial underscore killing on Instagram or on the YouTube channel under the same name of this podcast. Consider sponsoring the podcast. And I also wanted to make an announcement this upcoming October, which is just a few months away. I am going to have a huge October extravaganza. I don't know what I'm going to name it yet. Suggestions are appreciated. And I wanted to extend an invitation for my listeners. If you would like to write out a sort of true creepypasta, although um, fiction is fine, and email that to me to SerialKillingInstagram at gmail.com, your story could be chosen to be read during a podcast in October. And then after I've read them, we will have a vote for the best one, and the winner will receive a Serial Killing t-shirt. And thank you once again for listening to me. I appreciate you guys so much. Have a great day.